Chapter One of Quintus Oakes, a detective story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Quintus Oakes, a detective story by Charles Ross Jackson. Chapter One The Rescue. It was a warm summer evening. The air was stifling and still. I, Rodney Stone, attorney at law, left my apartment to stroll along Broadway, seeking a roof garden wherein to spend a few hours of change from the atmosphere of the pavements, and to kill the ennui that comes to all of us whom business compels to accept such circumstances. As I walked down a side street, I noticed ahead of me a coloured man rush out from an apartment house, shouting something that I did not understand. His actions seemed peculiar for a moment, but a curl of smoke from one of the third-story windows made known the cause. It was fire. I found myself among the first to reach the spot. From Broadway a crowd was coming, such as collects readily under these circumstances. I was soon mingling with it, watching the police in their endeavours to rouse the tenants and to spread the alarm on all the floors. The numerous dwellers were soon rushing out, and I saw several deeds deserving of mention. As the crowd looked up at the apartment in which the flames were showing and from which smoke was pouring, a window was raised, evidently in a separate room, and a young girl appeared standing at the sill. The effort of raising the sash had been a severe one for her, for she was not over ten. Looking back into the room, she saw the smoke filling it and quickly scrambled out on the window frame. The engines had not yet arrived, but I could hear them shrieking in the distance, and we all knew that help was coming. "'Don't jump! Don't jump!' was the cry from us all. I advanced instinctively, as did many, to be nearer, for we saw that fear had taken possession of the child, and that she seemed about to slide outward and drop to almost certain disaster. A tall, handsome, well-built man in the crowd behind us spoke in a voice of confidence and assurance— "'Hold tight, little girl. You're all right.' I noticed that he was breathing hard. He had just arrived in haste. Even as he spoke, the little one's head moved from one side to the other, and she seemed in distress. Then something like an avalanche came from back of me, tearing the crowd asunder. A hand fell on my shoulder, and I reeled to one side as the tall stranger sprang forward, saying, "'She is going to faint.' Quick wit and quick eye had detected what none other realised— that nature was being overcome, and that the fall was inevitable. The limp little body slid a second, then pitched forward. A groan went up at what seemed sure death, but the stranger's rush was timed to the instant, and as the child's body curved head downward in its flight, his strong figure reached the spot, and his arms caught the child. The man braced as they swung downwards to his side depositing the unconscious girl in my hands and those of a policeman. She did not touch the sidewalk, but the young giant came to his knees by the force of the impact. It was a marvellous piece of work, and the crowd cheered and closed in upon the rescuer and our burden. The child was taken away by those who had escaped. Then all hands looked at the man, and somebody started to speak to him and to ask him his name. He turned to me, "'Sorry to have smashed into you that way, sir,' he said. I answered, saying something about I was glad he did, and upon looking up, I saw he was gone. We watched him, and saw him turn into Broadway, 
bound on avoiding further notice. "'Who was he?' cried many. A thick-set, tough-looking character spoke up. "'Oh, he's de gazabo what done de turn on de—' At this instant a policeman pushed toward us, and shoving a club into the fellow's ribs, shouted, "'Come now, get out of this, or I'll—' The fellow was off, and with him our chance of identifying the stranger vanished. The police had been too busy with other matters to secure his name. Another good act to be credited to the unknown. The fire was soon under control, and I renewed my walk, emerging on Broadway as the shadows of night were coming on, and the street was awakening to its characteristic summer life. Suddenly I saw him, the identical man, walking across the thoroughfare. I quickened my pace, although going rapidly at the time. It was my intention to get closer to him, and notice him better, as I was interested. He turned uptown, and I saw that, although he was walking easily, his pace was quicker than mine. What impressed me more than anything else was his graceful carriage, and the fine cut of his clothes. He was dressed in a dark suit without waistcoat, and one of those soft white summer shirts which have become popular of late years. On his head was a plain but expensive Panama. As he passed up the street ahead of me, gaining all the while with his easy stride, he saluted a few gentlemen, and the policemen seemed to know him. He evidently was a striking figure to other eyes than mine, for I noticed several men stop and half turn to look after him, a thing that one sees on Broadway but seldom. He turned into a side street, and again I lost him. I fancy he disappeared into one of the bachelor apartment houses of that section. During the rest of the evening, I regretted not having made stronger efforts to learn his name. Then I laughed at myself for being so impressed by a stranger's appearance. The fact was that the man's action and personality had affected me so strongly that for days I frequently found myself thinking of the fire and the rescue. I often looked along the street when walking, in a vague hope of seeing the handsome, clear-cut face of the man who had acted so promptly, but so unostentatiously. Little did I then know how great a factor that man was to be in the moulding of my future, how circumstances were shaping, to link his active nature with my career, and to lead me into one of the most peculiar experiences that ever came to any one. Over a month passed, and the first signs of fall were upon us. The streets were assuming the appearance of activity, and familiar faces reappeared in the public places, all invigorated and refreshed by the summer's outings. Early in October, I found myself with my friend Dr. Moore, a well-known physician, standing in one of the popular theatres. We had dropped in for one act or so, and, like so many others, were unable to secure seats owing to the hour and the popularity of the play. At first, engrossed with the performance, we paid no attention to the audience. But when the act closed and the lights were turned up, we glanced around as we prepared to leave for a stroll. My attention was called to some ladies in one of the lower boxes, two fair-haired and strikingly attractive young women, and an older one, evidently a relative, for there was a resemblance in features that was noticeable. The younger ones were certainly sisters. Their similarity of complexion, face, and figure rendered such an assumption a certainty. My friend noticed them, and a change came over his face. He began to beam as one does who has seen a friend. We were far off, and in a position where we could admire without impoliteness. "'Those are charming ladies,' I said. "'You seem to know them more.' "'Yes, I have not seen them for quite a while. "'They are old patients of mine. "'Do you see anyone with them?' 
"'If I mistake not, he is somewhere in the box,' continued Moore. "'He? Who?' "'As I spoke, I noticed a gentleman, a tall, clear-cut fellow. "'Lean forward and speak to one of the sisters. "'As he moved, his face came full in the light, and I recognized him. "'It's he!' I cried. "'I found him at last!' "'Found whom?' exclaimed Moore. "'Him! That man!' "'Great Scott!' said Moore. "'You must be sick. What ails you, anyway? Have you been dining at the club?' I turned to my friend and said, "'Doctor, I found him at last, that man in the box.' "'Well, did I not tell you he ought to be there?' said Moore. "'Because you found him, do you think you have accomplished a wonderful piece of work? Of course he was there.' "'What do you mean? Whom are you talking about, anyway?' I asked. Dr. Moore looked at me as though wondering if I were in my right mind, then said, "'Stone, I'm talking about the gentleman in the box. I said he should be there. He usually is with those ladies.' "'Yes,' I replied. "'It is he.' "'Stone, what's the matter? Come and take something, old man.' And seizing me by the arm, my companion led me away to the nearest café, where he watched me closely as he poured out a bracer. I seized it and said, "'Here's to the man in the box. I found him.' "'Of course you found him, old man. I don't see what you are making such a fuss over that fact for. It's not a question of priority.' "'No,' I said. "'It's a question of identity.' "'Explain.' "'Well, I want to know who he is. "'He has worried my mind for a month.' "'Oh, is that all?' "'And Moore heaved a sigh of relief. "'He had been genuinely anxious about me. "'That was plain. "'Have you run up against him anywhere?' he asked. "'No, he ran up against me,' I answered. "'Here, sit down,' said Moore. "'What in heaven's name has got into you?' "'Nothing. "'Only I desire to know that man's name. "'I have had an experience with him.' "'Indeed. "'You're not the first, then.' "'Have you been up to anything shady, Stone?' said Moore, laughingly. "'No, only smoky, a fire. "'This man saved a child's life in a magnificent manner. "'What's his name?' "'Oh, I see. His name is Oakes. "'You should know that. "'He left college just a year or so after you and I entered. "'Don't you remember the fellow who saved those boys from drowning in the harbour that day?' "'You don't tell me. Is that Quintus Oakes? "'I never met him, but of course I knew him.' "'Everybody at college did after that. "'Yes, that's the same fellow. "'Well, I certainly did not recognise his face. "'Only saw it a moment, "'but there was something about him that seemed familiar, "'that walk of his. "'I remember it now.' "'As the memories of youth crowded upon me, "'I recalled him very well, "'and realised that the years had filled out his figure and face. "'But it was the same man, the same walk and carriage. "'I had seen them hundreds of times.' The quick, easy stride, erect figure and commanding bearing that had marked him so in his youth were as noticeable now in his full manhood as in those years of the long ago. My companion and I did not return for the last act of the play, but strolled out in the street where I told him of the episode of the fire and the part that Oakes had played in it. His actions, both at the time and afterwards when he tried to avoid notice, are characteristic, said Moore. He is reputed as doing things vigorously and opportunely. His presence of mind is marvellous, I am told. You remember he had that gift years back in college. Now it seems to have developed greatly, until everybody who knows him well speaks of it. Are you well acquainted with him? You seem to know all about him. Yes, indeed, answered my friend. I met him one night several years back, and I became so attracted to him that I cultivated his acquaintance wherever possible. "'Then you will understand how I was glad to identify,' was my rejoinder. "'Yes, indeed. If you like, you can easily manage to meet him.' 
I expressed my earnest desire, and Dr. Moore promised to arrange it so that we could meet some evening at the club. By the way, said my companion, he is probably the best informed all-round man you have ever met. He did not cease learning at college. Lucky for him, I exclaimed laughingly. Well, don't be surprised if he starts in to discuss law with you and hold you up at your own profession. He is a surprise party sometimes. All right, but what is his business? Moore looked at me and said, He is one of the most original detectives in the country. Oh, a detective. Along what lines? He surely is no ordinary one in that business. No, he used to work alone on unusual occurrences, but his success was so great that now he has a large number of subordinates who do the ordinary details, and he limits his work to the important points on select cases. He is not heard of much, and is seen very little, but his work is in great demand. I was interested, and asked if he had ever done any special work of prominence. Yes, said Moore, he solved the matter of the Red Rose of Trieste. Do you remember hearing of that? I exclaimed in amazement, he? Is he the man who solved that affair? You must be mistaken. That occurred, or began, in Europe. Exactly, said Moore. Quintus Oakes works there, as well as here. He speaks German, French, Italian, and perhaps more languages, fluently, and can secure evidence anywhere. He has travelled over the world several times. One year he was away ten months on a case, and secured the necessary evidence for conviction in Sydney. I see. He is something decidedly out of the ordinary, as his appearance suggests. He is on a new case just now, and he has promised to let me go, if I want to. It's a very short affair, and perhaps I will take a vacation that way. I have not been away yet this year, continued Moore. We now parted for the evening, and as he started to go, I called out after him, Say, Moore, get me into it, if it's exciting. I have had no vacation yet myself. Introduce me to Mr. Oakes as soon as you can, anyway. All right, I'll arrange for a night at the club, provided Oakes is not too busy. I returned to my rooms, little knowing how things were shaping, from an entirely independent direction, to throw me, willingly I confess, for a few brief weeks into a vortex of turmoil, to fight through it side by side with my friend Moore, and vigorous, cool, quick-witted Quintus Oakes. End of chapter 1